Welcome to Witch City Witches, a podcast from Salem, Massachusetts, exploring the practice of witchcraft. We explore witchcraft through many different lenses, including personal practices, tarot, astrology, ritual, and so much more. I'm Anna. I'm Becca. And today's episode, we have our guest, Ash. Hello. Ash, thanks so much for joining us. We're so excited to have you. Thanks for inviting me. And you're our first sort of non-local guest. Cool. So, <laughs> so tell us where you're dialing in from. Uh, I am calling in from Treaty 1 Territory in Central Canada. Awesome. Yeah. And so um, you call yourself a hedge witch, right? Yes, I do. Um, although it's a bit of a mix between, like, depending on how you how you choose to take definitions, then I'm a mix of hedge witch, green witch, and kitchen witch, uh, and then also a fiber witch professionally. So. Okay, so I'm going to be honest, I don't know that I could distinguish between hedge witch, kitchen witch, and green witch. I feel like there's not a distinction, but depending on like how intense you feel like going into it, then people are like, well, there's like these very specific things. And I'm like, yeah, but I do all of them. And also, honestly, like if you look at like, especially down my ancestral lineage, like we did multiple things. So I just, hedge witch to me is the easiest thing. I'm like, that encompasses basically everything. Um, so I just go with hedge witch, but depending on, you know, who's listening, then they, they might be like, mm, is that the only thing you do? So. <laughs> <laughs> we're, we're not real, not big on uh, real hard and fast boundaries between things. So, you know. And definitions. <laughs> <laughs> So I guess then the obvious next question is, so how do you define what being a witch is? What does that mean to you? Oh, that's, I like, I probably should have been thinking about that, but I, I have been thinking about it and I don't really have like a specific definition that makes sense, like rationally or logistically for me, like my practice in and of itself is very much based on intuition and my gut um and kind of tuning in to those kind of ephemeral things um and ephemeral kind of feelings um and that's very much my witchcraft so I define being a witch as like I you know I follow various practices I do not belong to any covens I don't belong to any organized witchcraft religions or practices or groups. Um, I find them just as problematic as any other organized religion. But I definitely have like, you know, rituals that I follow and um, certain beliefs that I hold and, you know, like what other people would consider superstitions. And I'm like, no, that's just like that's that's spell casting, whether you mean for it to be or not. So yeah, I guess my, my witchcraft is sort of like my gender identity. It's a little bit fluid and not exactly something that you can nail down. It's sort of like wispy bits of air that you try and like poke a pin into and they just kind of float away. So, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's interesting. You mentioned that, you know, you're not part of any group. Do you have, um, is, are you completely self-taught or are you, have you been part of groups and then left them or have you had mentors? Like how, how has that worked for you? I'm primarily self-taught um, on both sides. So I am white uh, and both sides of my family, the one side of my family is Scottish for the most part, and we can trace it back to the Hebrides. 
Um, and that, like, as I've been studying those traditions, those are very much in line with what I do. And there's for sure healers kind of along that route. Um, on my dad's side, it's Central Europe, but the war kind of fucked with everything. Uh, am I allowed to swear? I just yes, swore. yeah, you can swear. <laughs> <laughs> um, and so I, I don't actually know like what specific blood magic lies on that side of the family um, because uh, my tata, we don't really know where he came from or I don't know and, and none of the family really knows. Um, and then my grandma, half of her family, we, we still are in touch with um, and they are Polish and Roman Catholic or identify as that, but my grandma grew up in the Czech Republic with Klamnikal gypsies and like learned magic from them. Um, and so she had practices that I don't think we are technically blood related to, but I don't know. And, and I didn't learn any of that magic from her before she died. I knew that she did it and she practiced it, um, certain things like dream reading and things like that, but I didn't learn it from her. So I don't practice it myself. And then there's like, there's some weird shit that happens in my body whenever I hear like Orthodox Jewish chants and things like that. So I don't know if there's like something going on there ancestrally. And, you know, frequently people are like, oh, you look Jewish, which is weird. Like it's a weird thing to say to anybody. <laughs> um, but also it's like, I'm, I, I look like my dad more so than my mom. So I look Central European depending on who's looking at me. And so that in and of itself, it's sort of like, maybe I just look like I'm Polish. So uh, yeah, I don't know. It's a weird one because I like both sides of the family. My mom's side was very much not into like they, they were Christian and like kind of like Protestant Christian. But then like my nan would, if she met you going down the stairs, she would immediately turn around and go up the other way because you you couldn't cross somebody going downstairs and like you can't look at the end of you can't watch a funeral go out of sight like all of these like superstitions as far as they were concerned are also like very much kind of embedded in other ways so there's magic on both sides of the family line but nothing that I'm able to specifically be like for sure this is what this is and it comes from the that particular person in the bloodline and, and so a lot of the stuff that I've learned over the years is self-taught, but also because, because I've had family members who have done magic uh, of various sorts, then I also don't just like casually go about learning a thing because like, for example, I, I don't dream read because I didn't learn it from my grandma. And it's not something where I would like Google how to dream read or pick up a book on how to dream read. Like there's, mm -hmm. there's things where I'm like, I kind of see if it happens for myself naturally and whether or not I want it to, to continue. Like, you know, I don't necessarily want to talk to ghosts. So whenever they kind of show up then I'm, I, I generally shut it down because most of the ghosts that like to show up for me are not very happy, but I respect them. Uh, and so, yeah, it's a little bit weird and it's a little bit piecemeal. So like I find witchcraft history across the board, totally fascinating. And I love reading about it, but I haven't ever found somebody where I'm like, yeah, I definitely want to study with you. And I find also, especially 
as a white person, a lot of the people who teach various witchcraft practices, you like the the people where it's like, you know, you you know their name as opposed to like meeting somebody where you can feel that energy. And so you you they become a mentor through that. Most of the people where I'm like, oh, the, uh, like I recognize that name within the community, um, the global community, then usually the white folks have appropriated a whole bunch of things. And I'm like, I wouldn't want to study with you because I'm uncomfortable with you teaching me things that I have not been invited into by these other people. Like just because you learned various shamanic rituals from people in these other communities doesn't mean that I was invited to learn those things myself. And I'm like, I don't want to study with you if that's the way that you're going to be teaching me. So I don't know. It's a weird one. I think um, the, talking about like the, the superstitions about like going up and down the stairs and stuff. My husband's family is Polish and um, his father was actually born in the 1920s in Poland before the war. Yep. And um, his mother was actually uh, Romani, but she died giving birth. So like, we don't know anything about that side of the family. But so his, his dad, my father-in-law was raised by his grandparents and you know, on a farm in rural Poland. And it was very much like, if you're going to farm and the black cat crosses your path, then you need yeah. to turn around, go back to your farm. But yeah. if I'm going back to your farm, another cat crosses your path, then you, you need to turn around, and go back. And so my father-in-law, he passed a few years ago, but he was always just like, these superstitions are stupid. Like, <laughs> you know, he also, like, you know, was Roman Catholic, but he, he had yeah. no interest at all in that sort of like the Polish traditional folklore type stuff because he was just like, this is ridiculous. And so it's he was- so like, funny though, because it's so <laughs> embedded in like, like that whole region is like the folk Catholicism is very much kind of intermingled, which it becomes really because it's very ritual heavy, um, which I find interesting just from like a, you know, kind of a nerdy perspective, but it's also, it, it's a lot more open to like the black magic. So, you know, they will talk about like, like whenever I do research on, on that side of it, it's like, okay, we'll talk about like, healing and charms and things like that. And then we're also going to talk about curses and we're going to talk mm -hmm. about, and like, it's very kind of like equally shared. Whereas whenever I read about the, the Scottish side, then there's the healers and, and the druids and like that part of the witchcraft. And then they don't like to talk about the, the witches and the warlocks who would do the black magic. Yeah, I, I think so, that's a very European thing, um, yeah, starting well, with like with like the Inquisition and like you know in like the like the sixteen and seventeen hundreds that like yeah. that sort of splitting them off. Like, oh well, I don't do that stuff. Whereas exactly. like other um, and you know obviously Poland is part of Europe as well, but I mean like you know Western and Northern European that sort of like cleaning our hands of that. We don't get the we don't touch the messy stuff. Whereas if you look at like any other, you know, any other cultures across the world, there's more, there's more accepting of both sides, that things work together. Yeah, it's very open. Yeah, yeah. this reminds me of when we had uh, Lauren on here because she's a Bane worker and talking about how that's a very sort of specific slice that a lot of people don't want to touch. Yeah. And it's interesting too, though, because then you go to, like, I, I traveled around Iceland and I find Iceland's witchcraft history fascinating because the majority of what was written down and the trials were very much rooted on like the gender of the way that the witchcraft trials and the, the way that 
records were kept, I find really interesting because in Iceland, it's a very magic heavy place to begin with. And when you travel around it, you understand why, because you see fucking trolls everywhere, but then, and the, the fairies, but as far as like the official witchcraft records, the majority of the people who were tried and found guilty were men and the the material that they then choose to include in like the museums and things, even though there is so much folklore and so much magic across the board, when you're looking at like the books that compile the sigils and things, it's very, very heavy on the black magic side of it. There's a lot of curses. There's a lot of like manipulating energy and the universe to force things to do what you want that is not which is also like I don't do that like the rule of threes I take very seriously and so I I often avoid spell casting because I'm like if I fuck this up this could be a problem um but the the stuff that they have maintained is like you know here's 12 different ways to kill a thief and here's the necromancer's pants and like all of these things that it, it when you're traveling and you're you're seeing those things it feels very uncomfortable like anytime i encounter spaces that either are haunted and or have like heavy magic influences i feel it very much in my body um and and i would travel around iceland and be like oh this space is like like this space clearly has some stuff going on but it was not negative and then you would find a spot where it's like Here's where this, you know, thing that happened during witchcraft history uh, and during the witchcraft trials happened. And you can just feel the negative energy just kind of like seeping out of the ground. And yeah, it was it was very interesting because, of course, the majority of the rest of the European witchcraft trials, with the exception of, I think, Germany, everywhere else, the majority of people who were hung were women. And then we don't have of course, any records on queer bodied folks, but probably they also just were killed. Yeah, that actually reminds me of a discussion I was having uh, with a different group recently about how there's this perception that that witches are women. And like, it even goes to like, you know, like like fiction stuff like Harry Potter, where like, you know, you're men are wizards and and I know that I know you have thoughts on the recent what J.K. Rowling has been saying recently. Um, I don't know if you want to get into that right now, but just the, <laughs> that, that that but the term witch is very gendered in our society. Yeah. But the thing it came up that like you know we keep saying that it's very gendered, it's all women. But then you look at the people who have who have the biggest voices and are who are going who are speaking at conferences and are who are selling yeah. books, and there are a lot of white cisgendered men. Yes, a hundred percent. You know. Um, a really great book that I recommend for everybody is called Witches, Sluts, and Feminists. And it's this fantastic book of essays that talks about exactly that, like how the identity of a witch is heavily attached in Western society to English-speaking Western society, I should say, um, to feminists in a negative way uh, and to sexual power also in a negative way which of course is attached to the church and colonialism and like all of those fucked up things like when we look at the traditions of cultures that like when we look at the queer traditions of cultures that bit like pre-contact with christians 
the frequently the healers were were queer bodied folk and it was like recognized that as queers there is a magic already kind of embedded in in living in those liminal spaces and having that ability to kind of like flex between things and and so yeah frequently the healers and the like very magical folks were were queer bodied people which then of course post contact those people just disappeared um, they gave they were killed you know, I guess that's a good time to say happy pride to our listeners because we are recording in the middle of pride. So happy yeah. pride to yeah. all the witchlings out there. And this is just a reminder to anyone listening that we are completely trans inclusive. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and that actually leads us to, you know, since we already started talking about it a little bit, but some interesting questions. One thing that I've seen a lot uh, as far as conflict within the witch community and the pagan community that is a that's come up several times and, you know, I'm cis, so I, I can't say that I personally understand what it feels like to be in that space, but it's folks who are, you know, queer and gender fluid and mm-hmm. trans and f- being rejected in cer- some settings. Oh, and yeah, that's something that's right in pagan settings. I've seen a lot of covens who will come in and say like, no, you need to be cis and you have to be very much in those clear you know, sort of biological gender roles, which I find very, very disappointing. And yeah. there's um, a shit ton of transphobia within pagan circles, which is ridiculous. I, I feel like witchcraft is sort of the religious or spiritual path, because I know not everyone considers it a religion. That's a discussion we've had on here before, but it's sort of a place where misfits end up, right? Yeah. And then why is it that we're doing that kind of exclusion within our own? space it just seems so it happens in the queer community too though right like the number of like gay cis folks who just do not like the number of gay folks who don't you know believe in bisexuality or asexuality and then the number of cis queers who like disavow their trans and gender non-conforming we're like yeah exactly (laughs) like also fuck all of y'all like yeah but um I, i mean that we see it across the board, like within marginalized communities and within smaller communities, this whole thing of like fighting for scraps and needing to, I think uh, a lot of, I mean, also a lot of paganism is just like rooted in second wave feminist bullshit as far as I'm concerned, which is also why I have a very hard time just engaging with anybody who follows those things. But also it's, very much like trying to be acceptable to because it's also like honestly a lot of pagans in like within Turtle Island are white pagans right so it's like and say and British Isles and all that so it's like especially Wicca because of the way like the the way that that whole thing kind of built up and out and and so there's like hierarchies at play and people want to still feel like they're being accepted by the mainstream society. And as a result of that, then they shit on those of us who already are like mainstream society sucks. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so I, you know, I'm the, the person in the conversation who does have a, you know, traditional lineage and background and I come from a Dianic tradition and that always sparks some uh, conflict when I say that, because when you say Dianic, a lot of people assume that it means like Z Budapest style Dianic, mm-hmm. where it means that it's 
women only, right? Women only circles and it completely excludes men. And mm -hmm. as far as I know, it's super trans exclusionary as well. And yeah. for, for my tradition, what Dianic has meant is that it is goddess oriented. Uh, mm -hmm. We see the goddess as the primary deity and we treat the god as a consort as opposed to sort of being uh, equal in the hierarchy. But yeah. my group has, you know, my tradition has never been uh, gender exclusive or done anything like that. And so for me, it's always hard to say, hey, I'm a Dianic witch. Wait, I have a whole disclaimer. <laughs> you know? Yeah, totally. And I feel like a lot of it, too, is just like it depends on who's, you know, like gatekeeping, right? Like if you've got somebody who is hosting a coven or like is the high priestess or like whatever, and they're they're not trans exclusionary then then it becomes a non-issue but the problem also a lot of it is generational right like the colonialism fucked everything <laughs> over and, yes and so there like i think it'll be interesting in say 20 years when our generation is now at that point where where we become gatekeepers um mm -hmm. but at this point it's still a lot of people in of older generations who, you know, like trans folk, we've always been here. Um, gender non-conforming non folk have always been here, but we weren't necessarily seen. And, you know, you either were, were trying to blend in so that there was less risk, or you honestly often just didn't survive long enough. Or, or if you did survive, then you still like, you just weren't accepted into a lot of communities and they're just like there weren't that many of us out so you know i think it'll be really interesting to see in 20 years how a lot of these groups are are kind of structured but right now i think a big part of the problem is that um there's a lot of younger queer-bodied folk uh, and also older folks but they aren't necessarily trying to like gain entrance into spaces it's like the younger queer-bodied folk who are like trying to to find their homes and their covens and all that, uh, and then being rejected by folks of an older generation. Um, and that sucks. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, I would definitely say to anyone listening that if you come across a group that is exclusionary to, to folks that are you know, gender non-conforming, or there's even groups that are discriminatory against queer people in general, that they're very much about the straight, cis, experience yes. um yeah. and that's not that's not the only way to practice so definitely find a better group if you come across that shit yeah. i think it's also tricky because so many of the like it's not even necessarily that the individuals uh, that we come across are like this absolutely they are mm -hmm. and we all know this um but i think a, a big part of the problem too is that so much of the written history has erased queer folks so like for me, as a hedge witch and as a natural dyer, I work with plants all the fucking time. And finding information, like medical information and, and medicinal information about plants and their uses that is not gendered is incredibly difficult. Like the ways that the vast majority of the traditional texts talk about plants in like English speaking or in um, English source books uh, is extremely gendered. So like when I was able to find information about aphrodisiacs, that was not specifically like, this is a woman's herb, this is a man's herb. And like, even when you 
see witches selling things. It's like, well, this is a man's land or like this is a moon tonic for menstruating women. And I'm like, mm, it can be a moon tonic. Maybe you want to call it that. Uh, and it's for menstruating people because people who are not only women bleed. Um, right. But it's it, it then also becomes tricky because like, you know, if if the plant has specific uses for specific organs it's just like it it ignores intersex bodies it ignores trans bodies and and the vast majority of plants don't actually need to be tailored in this gendered fucking way it's like so many aphrodisiacs are actually aphrodisiacs because they are such intense nervines but it's like you you could just call it a nervine for people like that's you don't need to call it a woman's plant so. Do you have any aphrodisiacs that are sort of good for all genders that you would recommend? There's oodles. So like, Damia, so he, like couching this in, obviously, like if you're allergic to things, if you like know that you don't like things, obviously don't use it. Um, so you're not prescribing anything, not folks. not prescribing <laughs> anything at all. Uh, use at your own risk. That being said, um, passion flower is a fantastic like more gentle nervine that is also uh, frequently used as an aphrodisiac because of the way that it works on the nervous system. Damiana leaf is another one of those. And I actually, I love the smell of Damiana leaf. Um, and so one of the ways that you can actually kind of see whether a plant is an ally for you or not is to smell it, like to smell whatever the material is. And if you have a negative reaction, then chances are it's not a plant that's going to be one of your best buddies. So like rose is another example. And that's because it's a heart opening and heart healing plant. Um, and I actually hate the smell of roses. Like wild roses that grow here are about as close as I want to get to any rose. And I want to smell them fresh. And that is it. Like I don't want to smell dried roses anywhere. Please take them away. Um, but they are frequently used as an aphrodisiac because of the way it works on the heart and kind of like softening uh, the heart. Um, not I love roses. They're one of the few flowers I'm not allergic to. <laughs> That's weird. They have so much pollen. Um, so, so yeah, so like those are, yeah, Damiana is a, a newer one to me and I'm, I'm just in love with it. It smells spicy and delicious. Yeah, see here, I'm chuckling at you talking about not liking roses because you know, today we're recording on the solstice. Yep. And in my tradition, this, this solstice is the festival of roses because basically <laughs> it's when everything blooms and explodes. And so we, you know, we deck our altars in roses and I'm like, oh, I'm not inviting Ash over for this. No, <laughs> I, I will come for a different solstice. Yeah, um, <laughs> a, a, friend, a friend of mine who um, she actually, she's also, she does fiber stuff. She does spinning, but she does um, a lot of scent work. She came over. Oh, Angie. Yeah. She came she's, over. She's the one with the beautiful handspun braids on my Instagram. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. So, so she came over a couple of days ago and ripped all the petals off of my French rose bush, and she has been distilling them into hydrosols. So, um, I, uh, so yeah. So rose, I, I like roses, but um, I'm, I'm very allergic, breathing allergic. I don't like come out with a rash, but I just can't breathe around. Um, pretty much any flower that grows from a bulb. So oh, hyacinths, yeah. daffodils, narcissus, anything like that, I can't breathe yeah. near them. Oh, <laughs> daffodils are so cheerful. Anything, yeah. if I see anything scented and it says white flower blend, it's like, get away from me, away, away. 
So yeah, so I think it's, it's you know, we're saying about what's an ally for you that we all have very different reactions to different things. And, you know, knowing oh. what, with everything, whether it's with herbs or witchcraft paths or whatever, it's how is it affecting you? How are you interacting with this thing? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. So I wanted to talk a little bit. So you're like Anna said, you're our first non-local guest. And uh, so we're, we're based here in Salem, which is called the Witch City, hence our, our podcast name. Our yeah. police cars have little witches on brooms on them. Our fire trucks do. Our, yeah. our uh, high school mascot uh, for their football team is the witches. And oh, yeah. <laughs> so... You know, neither one of us is actually, you know, from Salem. We've both moved here in the last, you know, 10 to 15 years. But um, I'm interested in, um, I know some people have a very, have ideas about Salem. So I'm interested in like what, when people say, oh, I live in Salem, Massachusetts, what do you think? Well, I'm, disclaimer, Ash has been to Salem okay. briefly. Uh, they, they visited my house last October and got to visit my shop a little bit. And we got to go around a little bit. Not a ton, because actually, I guess I should tell everyone how I met Ash. So Ash yeah. and I actually met on Instagram because we yeah. both work in you know the knitting world. You folks know that my uh, you know day job is running a knitting store, a very witchy wit knitting store in Instagram. So Ash and I found each other on Instagram, and when they uh, left corporate life to become a full time fiber witch, I reached out and I was like, "Hey, let's collaborate." And they've been stuck with me ever since. And so I got to meet them in person for the first time last October because we went to Rhinebeck, which is what we call New York Sheep and Wolf Festival, which happens in Rhinebeck, New York. And, you know, this sort of circles back to what you were saying earlier, Ash, about how you really feel sort of the energies and spirits of a place because we went to a cabin in upstate New York. And haunted everywhere. (laughs) That land is so haunted. Oh my yeah, God. you know, we were at this little cabin at the edge of a like beautiful pond and all these woods and Ash and I are both like, we're not going out I'm there. I like, we, we got there, it was the middle of the fucking day. It was sunny and beautiful. The cabin was so cute. And I was like, I'm gonna just walk over this tiny little bridge and go up the hill. And like, I walked up the hill. You can literally see the other houses that are nearby. Like, we're not that isolated. And I got onto that side of the of the water and I was like oh shit I'm not supposed to be here and I like I tried I like walked around a little bit to see if the spirits would calm down and they did not so then I came back across and I didn't go back there during the rest of the time that we were there yeah and that's when Um, we noticed that there was a little dish by the front door with a piece of palo santo and we're like ah (laughs) yeah yeah no that land was so heavy and like I I I remember talking to a friend after the fact because I like I've been to spaces that are like all of Poland is haunted. I saw so many ghosts. The land was so heavy. Like there were spots I visited Auschwitz, which was a mess. Oh gosh, wow! It was a mess, and like there were certain spots in Auschwitz where I would not be able to continue walking past them or towards them. I'm like honestly getting goosebumps hearing this. I cannot imagine walking around Auschwitz. No, it was a and like the and so I would then afterwards find out that like oh this was a spot where a, like a lot of murders happened, not just like you know the whole not just one or two murders, happened. just several at once. You know yeah, you have no, to quantify like, oh, this is where they hung people and like this is where they shot people and like this is where they you know did experience like you could feel I could feel it, other people didn't, but I was like this is a mess. Yeah, you know, when you're walking around a place trying to categorize murders per square foot, like that's yeah, really yeah, it's just up. generally not a good thing. 
Yeah, so then you know, that's my very long-winded way of saying that Ash has technically set foot in Salem. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, so yeah, so I think that's sort of an interesting thing for me in terms of, so like I live in Canada, we are also on stolen land up here, um, but it's really interesting, honestly, crossing the border because we're like, we're a fucking mess up here. Like reconciliation has not happened. Racism is rampant. Our indigenous communities are treated like shit, but we talk about it to some extent and like going down to the States, I'm always so confused, honestly, because I'm like, how, like you guys are living the exact same experience and the same history of like like the borders did like those didn't exist until after all so much shit had happened and but like then I you know I went down and people were confused about why the land was haunted and I was like what do you mean you're confused and then I talked to somebody and they're like yeah you know there's just been no acknowledgement so like of course the spirits are still really angry like there's been zero effort to to acknowledge what has happened and so that's sort of I, I got like a little bit of that vibe in Salem but I also find Salem totally I mean like I've been obsessed with Salem uh, and the story of Salem for honestly most of my life like I, I can remember being like a young teenager and being interested in Salem um, and I became much more interested in it in recent years because Aaron Mankey, who runs the Lore podcast and Cabinet of Curiosities, he also runs, damn, now I forget the name of the actual podcast, but he runs one that each season will take uh, like a supernatural sort of thing. So I think the second season was about the signs, not the scientists. I don't remember. Anyway, but the first season was about Salem and they went very heavily into not just like the basics of the witchcraft trials but into the class issues that were at play and the gender issues that were at play and like all of these things that uh, absolutely would have had massive impact but that we just kind of gloss over in like the tale of Salem and it's like yeah these terrible things happened and like people died but they don't talk about like the systemic oppression and systems that were in play that allowed those things to happen and I think that made it much more interesting to me and I'm very curious to come and spend more time when COVID is no longer a thing and when you no longer have the Cheeto president <laughs> uh, yeah so, Ash was supposed to come back in May to teach at my retreat in New Hampshire that obviously went virtual yes <laughs> we did a that good job with out. that virtual retreat but yeah it, it meant not I was actually staring at the stack of shawls I was supposed to be photographing in around uh all the houses and that's just they're just sitting on a chair <laughs> yeah but you know one know. thing that i would love to do next time that you come to salem is uh, i think you're aware that i for a while was doing shamanic journeys at what's called the witch house here and it's a house that was wow. owned by one of the judges that was involved in the witch trials and it's a very interesting experience to be going into non-ordinary reality in that space um yeah. becca i hope joe doesn't mind me saying but you know he yeah, came yeah. a couple times and he just could not handle the energy there. Yeah, yeah. No, my my husband, and he was just like, you know, he's just like, I love doing the journeys. It's it's I it's really cool. I I would love to do it again, but I can't do it in that space. Like I just yeah. I I it's just it, too foul of a space. Yeah. So yeah. it's just there's just 
he couldn't relax in the space. There was just too much energy without even like saying if it was like good or bad or there was just too much and it wasn't his, <laughs> you yeah, know? Yeah. <laughs> I think that one of the things that's lacking in Salem is that, you know, we've become this sort of modern gathering place for witches and yeah. people are coming here and we came reclaiming witchcraft for their personal practice, but I'm not seeing a lot of investment in terms of energetic healing for the past of Salem. And that for me is one of the keys of my practice. It's what, you know, something that I call environmental shamanism, but it's that idea of, you know, you have to uh, develop a relationship with the spirits of the land. This actually reminds me, there's a book called Braiding Sweetgrass that's written by a Native American woman. And there's an amazing quote in there that's talking about that, you know, becoming indigenous to a land is basically, you know, becoming invested in it and caring about its future and what it's doing. And I think that that's a place that we're really lacking in Salem is that we're coming here as witches and no one is sort of taking ownership of that, of that land energetically. And that's something that I'm trying to change, you know, like, you know, sneak a little crystal here and there, do Reiki for this tree, do that. But if, how amazing would it be if we actually managed to do some sort of like healing ceremony for Salem on the common? Hey, Beg, I guess what we're doing soon. (laughs) (laughs) You know, but really. Is that you're still then dealing with like, I say this again, as a white person, like you're going to have so many white witches. And I say that as like white people who are witches. I don't, mm-hmm. I don't talk about white magic. Fuck that shit. White witches yeah. are white people who are witches. Um, <laughs> of white witches showing up and like being like, I'm going to do this thing. And like the land is, is traumatized because of white people and because of colonization. Right. And I think um, the other thing, the other thing about Salem that people don't talk about is that Salem actually has a history of slavery and yeah. that like, you know, Salem had the first uh, millionaires in the U.S. with the trade of uh, the spice trade and a lot of the mansions that exist, people had money because the people that owned them were trading in slaves. They were trading in actual human beings. Like it wasn't just the spice trade. Um, right, and the and, slave yeah. trade here was not just uh, Africans; it was also Native Americans. They were definitely, uh, you know, bounties on Native Americans in Salem, and you know, so there's this very much a link both to you know the exploitation of African people and Native people here. Right, yeah. and so I think that you know, like people like oh, like the, you know, the the trauma of Salem was the witch trials when you know, so much older fairly, than that. Fairly, I mean. A fairly small number of people died during the witch tri- Salem witch trials. Yeah, um, totally. It was twenty. It's just I really been—it's so. just really been the systematic oppression of different groups. You know, yeah. uh, African people, Native folks, women—you uh, know, anyone who sort of didn't fit into that box. And yes. you know, I love that now Salem actually has an ordinance written into law, a non-discrimination ordinance, which I yeah. I love. You know, I love that Salem has really tried to become a place that's, you know, better. Like we repainted all our rainbow sidewalks now and the UU church has all the rainbow doors. And, you know, we actually had a Juneteenth march yesterday from the common over to the police station. So I feel like Salem is sort of trying, um, but in a lot of ways it's trying in performative ways. You know, like what, what are we doing in terms of like actual energetic healing right so that we can try and have a place that's just a little bit healthier for everyone totally yeah the land just holds up so much of that trauma yeah uh for a different subject um 
Anna was telling me that you are working on a project involving uh, knitting and tarot cards. And tarot is something that we have <laughs> talked a lot about on this podcast. And I would like to hear more about that. Yay! So, oh God. <laughs> so I have been creating collections inspired by various parts of my witchcraft for a while. Uh, and it's been over a year now where in my brain, I'm like, I will eventually create a collection that is inspired by every single card in the tarot deck. I did the math and like even based at my current ridiculous rate of production, which is not a sustainable uh, rate, I will be the first to say that, it is a minimum of a six and a half year project. So realistically, wow. <laughs> probably won't get around to it anytime soon. But I have started in a smaller way by swatching the tarot. Uh, and so I, instead of creating full designs, I have been swatching each of the cards in the major arcana. I'm starting with that. Uh, and I'm so what I'm doing is I'm using mini skeins that I've been dyeing as part of my local color palette study, which is part of my personal natural dyeing practice of the commercial side of my practice. And then I, I'm really focused on local uh, colors for the personal side of my practice. Uh, so a little bit of a uh, background for the non-knitting folks. So um, oh, yeah. what swatching means is basically when you knit like a little rectangle or square, that's just a sampler of a stitch pattern. Yeah, um, and so size of a poster. Yeah. And uh, one of the things that Ash does as, you know, a hedge witch and herbalist is they do natural dyed yarn that they sell. So everything is dyed with plants. Uh, and a couple of bugs. But we don't have those bugs up here. So it's all plants as far as the local things. And so... So yeah, so I've been then doing a little bit of research into the cards because I also, like, I consider myself very much a rudimentary tarot reader. Um, I rely on my guidebooks and I don't know most of the cards off by heart. And I, uh, most decks I have a really hard time reading. I love my Wanderer's Tarot deck because it's always been something that I've been able to intuitively read. Um, but like my first deck, which I have, I still have, is my dad's deck originally, actually. And it's a Rider weight. And I have a really hard time reading it. Uh, and then I've bought a couple of other decks and ultimately always pass them on to new people because, because I haven't been able to just like intuitively read them. Uh, and so, so yeah, so it's, it's sort of a little bit of like, I get to nerd out about the plants a little bit because each episode that comes out each week, there's now been one episode. And uh, next week we are doing The Magician. And when and you say so, episode, is this YouTube or? On uh, IGTV and okay. also on Vimeo because I have not figured out if anybody knows how to add closed captions on a pre-recorded IGTV video. Please let me know because I currently am looking at spending about $400, I think, by the time I'm through the Major Arcana to get somebody else to write the, the file that I then need. Um, which I can't upload on IGTV, but I can upload it onto Vimeo. So if somebody needs the subtitles um, or the closed captions, then they can watch the Vimeo link instead of the IGTV link. But there's got to be a cheaper, easier way. Somebody yeah, needs I've to make I've never been on IGTV. I am definitely not the person to help with this. <laughs> <laughs> somebody send me an Instagram DM. Yes. Uh, Find Ash so, on Instagram, at sunflowernet. Yes, please. But yeah, so it's, uh, it, it's really fun because I, I spend, you know, like eight to 10 minutes talking a little bit about the plant and a little bit about the tarot card. And then that's sort of it. Um, and I haven't really made a point, like 
a couple of the swatches I've made so far because I've pre-made a lot of swatches. Um, there's a correlation between the plant that I use, um, but more often than not, not there is there's no reason behind why I, I pair a specific plant with a specific card. Um, I think if I was more knowledgeable about the cards going into it, then probably I would be a little bit more intentional there, but it doesn't feel like it's that necessary of a of an aspect of it that it should then stop the rest of the series. So yeah, and so uh, there are some other places where your you know witchcraft practice overlaps with your uh, fiber career, you know, hence the term yeah. fiber witch. Uh, you know, like you run a program called the Creative Coven. Yes, uh, my my knit design process. So I guess like I should catch this in saying that like I'm fully self-employed. I've been fully self-employed for the last couple of years. And I love being fully self-employed because I don't like working for other people. Um, yeah, I'm self-employed and my boss is a hard ass. You, <laughs> I won't make a comment there because we've had these conversations off screen. <laughs> um, <laughs> but uh, it, I've had a slower journey to getting to a point. Like I, I was running my business on the side full-time hours the whole time. But like it was a side hustle for me for several years before I was in a position to make the jump to full-time. And that part of that is because I don't have a partner that I'm splitting bills with. Like I, I needed to be in a position where I could cover all of my bills with my business. Um, and part of why it took me so long is because I have always been very vocal from the get-go about being queer, about being a witch, about my politics and my values. Um, and so because of that, I, I haven't gotten to the point yet where I've gone truly viral. Um, which makes my life a little bit easier because then like when shit hit the fan last year in the knitting community finally and people started realizing and acknowledging uh, white people everybody else already knew when white people suddenly started realizing like oh wait maybe we're a little bit racist maybe you're a lot racist then a lot of friends of mine who had been not as vocal uh like explicitly about their values they like they took a hit like realistically their businesses took a financial hit um because then they started speaking about things and they they got screwed over uh because they hadn't been cleaning house as they went and so then they had these giant audiences who only wanted to talk about knitting and weren't interested you know privilege was allowing them to just kind of put blinders on um and they had zero interest in taking those blinders off uh, whereas for me, when shit hit the fan for other people, it it honestly did not change my day to day other than my general anxiety level. And like, that's my own thing. But I didn't see a, a drop like anytime I post something very political or I'm like very explicitly like I, I swear a lot clearly and I'll just be like, fuck you, white people. Like, what are we doing? You're an idiot. Um, why are you not protecting like our black trans siblings? Like what the fuck's wrong with you? And, or like I talk about like a pipeline protest or like, you know, those things every, you know, if I post them in my weekly newsletter, I will maybe lose two subscribers and I will gain three. And if I talk about it on social media, social media doesn't really shift for me. And I just kind of like grow at the usual increments because I am constantly talking about my politics. And so I didn't need to clean house because I'm consistently cleaning house. But it's, it, it, it did also mean that it took me longer to get to a point where I was making regular enough sales to be able to rely on my business because I didn't have something go 
viral and then continue to stay at that level. Like I've never gotten to that point at this point. Uh, mm-hmm. And I don't, honestly, I don't really want to. Like if I had a pattern go so viral that suddenly I was like the next Andrea Mowry, I would be hiring somebody else to take care of my social media immediately. That would be like my first priority. I'd be like, I don't want to talk to all these people. Also make sure that you're putting a whole bunch of swears into things and then like giving people anti-racism reading lists so that we can just kind of like clear out the clutter that I don't want on here. Yeah. Like, I am not a knitter and I have no idea who you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> the knitters will understand and the non-knitters, it's not relevant to you anyway. Yeah, well, so yeah, Andrea Maori is, I would say pretty much the most famous uh, like knitting design, indie knitting designer right now. And she was yeah. someone who really kind of helped sort of push the image of what a knitter is because, you know, she is blonde, skinny and gorgeous, but she's covered in tattoos head to toe. And she went viral a couple of years ago. Yeah. And before Um, that, it was Stephen West, who's a very tall, very flamboyant gay man. So it's like every few years, there'll be kind of a new big name who stays that big name for a couple of years. And then they like, it's not like they suddenly disappear off the map. It's just that then there's somebody else who starts driving trends. So right now, Andrea is the person who's driving a lot of trends. Um, You know, like she does good work. So like, I don't care. Um, That's like, that's not... Uh, that's a non thing, but yeah, it it does make it tricky when you have an audience of tens of thousands of people. Um, if you have not, and Andrea does talk about uh, like Black Lives Matter, and it, you know, like she's not silent about those things. Um, but she was silent, and I don't know how much it impacted her business right away uh, when she did start talking more frequently about these things. Mm-hmm. Um, and I do have other friends who I know were silent. And then when they did start talking, we, we were talking about numbers and they were like, yeah, no, this was the percentage I saw my sales go down or like, this is how many followers I lost. And followers don't, you know, it, they're- Followers aren't no, sales, yeah. No, followers are not sales. There is nothing that correlates there, but it is just an indication of like how much your message is getting out there. And, and, may or may not have an impact on your on your actual sales so but as far as I'm concerned that like it if you're a a racist person or you're transphobic or whatever like I don't want your money I because also the emotional labor for me I'm very much like in my feelings all the time and the emotional labor for me dealing with you is not worth however much money you might drop with me whether it's nine dollars for a pattern or a hundred and sixty dollars for some yarn like I don't give a shit. Somebody else can give me that money instead, who I like as a person. And right. you can go like No, I agree. <laughs> this is how I maintain a smaller audience. <laughs> Looping back to the original thing that we were talking about was the creative coven. Uh, right. Yeah. So that's what that's your, I guess, design. Yeah, that's my shawl apprenticeship. Design so uh, well, I guess not an apprenticeship, but I do like it's a it's a smaller group. You work at your own pace. And so I have, I recently relaunched it after it was on hiatus for a little bit. Um, and it is very much focused on helping knitwear designers make knitwear design their full-time gig. And part of that includes how do you run a business that is centered at, from a place of values um, and, and kind of scale and make your plans based on that knowledge, um, at which like for me it you know so long as you're always working from a centered place then whatever shit hits the fan you can weather it in some form 
Do you sneak any witchcraft into the creative coven? Because I mean, you know, obviously the name is coven. Spreads. Yes, there's tarot spreads uh, to help with decision making. I don't like I don't expect all of my students to be witches. And I don't it's not like I exclusively work with fiber witches, right? Like that's right. not, you know, I don't do that. But I definitely work my magic in when I'm talking, when I'm teaching an natural dying class, the politics and the ethics that I use in terms of foraging and working with plants is the exact same that I do when I'm working with plants for healing purposes. And like making offerings is the same across the board when you are foraging from plants um, and having a relationship with plants. And then on the design side of it, like I don't expect my students to be witches, but if they are witches, then here's some tarot spreads. And like I sent there, I did like a bonus for, for some of my new students, like the first students that joined in and they got a money magic manifestation deck, which I have found really useful and helpful in me reframing my, um, my relationship with money as an energy thing. Uh, and then also what else did I send them? I sent them a joint slab, which is made with plants, of course. And then um, I also had made stitch markers that I made with citrine and pyrite because creativity and abundance are things that we need as designers, a little bit of extra help. So you can literally be like knitting your magic in with each stitch. Um, so I, I definitely work it in, but I don't do it in like such an explicit way or in such like an overwhelming way. I don't think that somebody who is not a witch would feel, would feel, uh, like isolated from accessing the teachings, the actual class. Right. But like, as you said, you know, you're very upfront about who you are and how you market yourself. Uh, yeah. you know, you openly talk about, you know, the Celtic wheel of the year, because I, I assume from your Instagram that you do observe that because you talk about, you know, Samhain and solstices and the other yeah. Sabbaths. Well, um, like I've done a whole, I have one, one, <laughs> I just have Beltane left. And this year's Beltane was a shit show because of COVID. So yeah. um, it will be finished next year. But I've, I've been following the Wheel of the Year with mini collections, which is funny because I'm starting to see others do it as well. And I like, I enjoy seeing other people recognizing the Wheel of the Year with their own versions of very similar offerings where it's like, here's like a book with some DIY things that are related to this particular solstice or equinox and then here's a knitting pattern and I'm like cool that is basically what I have been doing for the last three years I only got around to finishing you know I was back in the day working on a knits with intention collection I only got one spell kit out which was a sock knitting kit with a grounding spell and a grounding crystal nice I love it it, right because it's like we can all have similar ideas and then just like rip off with our own idea of it like I'm seeing a a few different designers like I know you're working on tarot deck for knitters which I'm stoked about um and I'm seeing other people being like I'm working on this tarot deck for knitters or like oh I came up with this oracle deck for knitters or fiber artists and and like as far as I'm concerned there's space for all of those things and you know if you really love it then you're going to buy everybody's stuff and if you like one person's thing really specifically you're going to grab that person's stuff and it's like what I what I have increasingly lost patience for in general is people who are like so embedded in a scarcity mindset that they're like, this, this thing that I'm doing is very precious and nobody else can do anything like it. Because I'm like, 
we are all like there's collective mindset like we we all know that if you look at the traditional motifs across the world before there was the the trade and globalization like there are certain motifs that are in, on every single continent except for Antarctica like there are things that are just in the collective brain um, right. and then there's just the fact that we're all working off of you know like everybody's get, seeing the same fucking things on Pinterest because that's how algorithms work so I, I, I understand because I've been there and I think this is also why I don't have as much patience for it, where it's like the, because you are feeling scared about something or you're feeling like a lack of control over something, or you are, you know, dealing with like systemic oppression that makes life shittier and harder, then yeah. it's very easy to fall into a scarcity mindset. And I am absolutely not saying that like mind over matter or positive vibes only or any of that shit but I for myself when I start feeling myself getting especially jealous overseeing somebody else doing something that I may or may not have been doing openly myself uh like maybe I just had an idea for it or it's like oh I did that three years ago and now I'm seeing somebody else do it and it, it I'm perceiving them as having more success how I am defining success uh, with what they're doing. And I just, and so for me, that's always an indication that like, I need to step back and figure out why I am personally feeling that, that like lack or scarcity and figure it out for myself because it means that I am missing something and it's not that other person's job to stop doing what they're doing. Um, yeah, and everything that you're talking about doesn't apply just to, you know, knitting. I think that no. this is also resonating for me a lot as far as the wish community at large and yes. this idea of, you know, we have millions of tarot readers, right? I mean, Becca and I are both tarot readers. That doesn't mean that we're, you know, competing with each other in a negative sense because we have different styles and people will come to us because, you know, either they connected with me more or they connected with Becca more. And well, so I, I think like that that's you a, you know, good thing to think about in you know, all the realms, especially, especially yeah. for people who are listening and are, you know, magical practitioners and healers and sort of remembering that, you know, coming from an abundance mindset is definitely better. Yeah. Well, and honestly, like, I feel like when you understand something more deeply, then you value somebody else doing it well. Like I, the more that I'm working with plants, the more I value fellow herbalists who are making tinctures, right? Like I'm like, I want a whole fucking cupboard of tinctures that other people have made not just me and same with like you know like charged candles and like it just all these things and like getting a really good tarot reading I'm like there's there are multiple people that I am comfortable going to for a tarot reading and would happily pay money to each of them for it's sort of like like I would never expect somebody to have a closet full of only one single place's designs right like the that's just a highly unlikely thing, even if you're looking at like having a lower income and so you can only purchase from certain stores, you're still probably purchasing from like Old Navy and Walmart and Costco, right? Like it's not, you don't only have one place's things in your closet. So why would you only have one person's things unless you really love it? And in that case, like that's great, but it doesn't mean that everybody else doing similar work is then discounted or is like not as skilled or whatever. Like it's, I don't know. 
Yeah, I do. I, I, I've seen a lot of weird tribalism about that sort of thing with brands and especially with like with with big brands, you definitely see. But also with like, you know, small niche companies, it's like like people lock their identities towards a company that they buy something from or, you know, yeah. like the like I've seen it a lot in um, like the um, scented oils. Um, yeah. You know, sort of well, like the small perfumery groups. And yeah. like, they really like, like, oh, like this company is the best and everyone else is just copying them. And it's just like, well, yeah. I'm sure there, I'm sure there is some of that, but I like, that's not a hundred percent. Like there's just more than one person who likes to make perfume. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like, you know. like the, scent, the scent combo is not like patented by a person. Like yeah. also that scent combo existed long before because or you know, doing a or doing a series of scent based on Alice in Wonderland like there's no yeah, like exactly. you know so I think that like there's definitely um there's definitely a sort of tribalism that does happen and it happens with witchcraft as well of of like you know this is the tradition that I was taught and that this therefore this is the best tradition and everyone else is just stealing from it um yeah. and that's definitely does happen I'm not going to say like you know that does that never happens but the idea that that's that that's always what is happening. I think it happens much less frequently than um, than some of the hardcore defenders uh, would have you believe it happens. Oh. That like, and a lot of people will, you know, you're talking about like, you know, uh, in the knitting world about people losing sales and stuff because they weren't addressing problems with their with their stores or whatever. And I think that that happens, that people will kind of rally around things that they're fans of and dismiss things that the, the, that the company or that person is doing that are negative because, well, they can't be doing anything negative because I'm a fan of them. And if they're doing something negative, that reflects on me. And so rather than just actually reflecting on, well, what does that mean? It becomes very much like, no, they can do no wrong. My high priest, can't can't be doing the things that he's been accused of because he's been great to me or yeah. you know like it, it goes into all different areas of that of um that when you identify so closely with one thing it really becomes this dangerous inability to see the truth and that yeah. that goes towards the you know the religious communities that you join that goes towards the you know, the knitting patterns that you buy that goes towards the small batch perfumes that you, you know, that you use. It's like, it's like across the board that identifying so, and obviously in politics as well, that identifying so closely with one thing causes people to blind themselves to other things. And I think it does a, it does a disservice, right? Because then we are not giving, like if somebody fucks up and we blindly support them and refuse to acknowledge the fact that they fucked up, then we are not giving them the space to learn and to, and to make reparations for the fuck up and to do better next time, which like that doesn't help anybody that screws everybody over. Yeah. So we are a little bit over an hour right now. Any topics that we want to cover before yeah, wrapping up? I was actually going to say that uh, we should talk a little bit about solstice traditions and what the solstice is to each of us. You know, we always run over an hour and yeah. no one's no one's complained so far. So, <laughs> so you know, I, I did mention that in my tradition, 
you know, Litha is uh, the, the festival of roses, right? And it's really sort of that, uh, it's always explained as the orgasm of nature, right? That's what flowers are and blooms and just, so for me, it's really about decking the, your altar with flowers and roses and, you know, it's the longest day of the year and it's sort of reveling in that. And of course, there's always that little bit of the shadow side, meaning like this is the longest day of the year, but that already means that we're starting to go into that decline. Okay. So for me, it's generally putting, you know, white and red roses on my altar as part of what I do, but I'm curious to hear well, what the two of you do for this holiday? Well, for me, Litha is one that I don't recognize. Like I, so Samhain and Yule are like my two big ones and I fucking love them. And I, I go a little bit all out with both of them, but the other ones I'm generally a little bit more chill with. Uh, and so I always, I, I usually mark them with food for the most part. So like I, you know, mm. bake a fresh loaf and then honestly today is like like the problem for litha as well is that it always coincides like this is when i would love to be like somewhere in the woods and with a body of water and a it's covid so even though we are not in the same position as you guys i'm still basically stuck inside uh and then litha always overlaps with worm season here and so i literally cannot go outside of my house right now without being covered in webs from worms out of their butts and it's disgusting so like over the like the last two weeks and probably for another one to two weeks we basically stay inside like I send my dog out to play in the front yard by herself and I watch her eat the worms out of the trees and then she comes in and I don't go out with her and if I need to leave the house I go out through the back door because there's no trees there so I think this might be a U.S. English Canadian thing, but by worms you mean like caterpillars? Because when I say think worms, I, I think know. earthworms. Oh, I mean, yeah, I guess so. So they're they're like they're sort of caterpillars. They're different. So we have three species here this year. The elm tree worms are the only ones that are particularly bad, but we also have tent caterpillars and then something another species that I don't remember exactly, but they strip the trees. Mm -hmm. They are caterpillars. They turn into moths. They have mm -hmm. no use in the ecosystem. They have evolved so that birds don't like to eat them. Literally the only thing that eats them is Willow, my dog. And so they are useless and they like, we have such a short growing season. I hate them passionately. Are they and gypsy so, moths? Are they no, they're, okay. they're just we, like, yeah, we have a, we have a very destructive caterpillar here. That's called uh, the unfortunate name of gypsy moth. They're not native at all. I think they're originally from Asia, but or I'm, I'm not sure where they're from, but they were imported because someone thought that they would be able to crossbreed them with silkworms. Oh, that's um, so that didn't work. They just, yes, we get like some years they're really bad and some years they're hardly there at all. I remember being a kid in the 80s and my sister, my older sister was a camp counselor and going to visit her at this camp on Cape Cod and it sounded like it was raining because it was just yeah, caterpillars pooping. Yes, no, that 100% happens here, but we have three different species doing it and this year it's primarily just the elm caterpillars. Um, See, that sounds to me like prime time to do like shedding magic or cocoon magic or something. No, I literally just want to set trees on fire. 
I also live in yeah. an area that is, it, it's a hippie area. Uh, mm -hmm. And so we are consistently buffer zone from any sort of pest management mm. um, because people are dumb and they're like, no, we want all of the trees to be stripped for uh, the middle of the yeah. harvest season yeah. or the middle of the growing season. That's a good idea. So I think if I were to paint the tree, also the problem is that I can paint my trees, but then mm -hmm. if other people have not done theirs, then it's- They, it's they climb through the canopy. Exactly. So, yeah. So yeah, so I guess uh, with that uh, little diversion, um, my- <laughs> I, um, I, I've always loved Midsummer. I think not being able to go to the beach or to go out into nature is a problem for me this year. But I am, you know, I am planning to do um, a candle ceremony tonight since it's, you know, the solstice, it's solar related. But yeah, so it's more fire related for me. But also I have passed, if I'm, you know, Anna, you mentioned with the roses, I'm making something with roses. I will go out like in the morning and pick roses for something to like specifically on the summer solstice. Today, it's just really warm here. It is. Um, <laughs> it's, it's, it's raining here. So it's oppressive here. Yes. Yeah, so I've already watered my veggies three times today. I don't, oh I don't have uh, air conditioning in my house. I, we, we just today installed the AC in the bedroom. So like that will be okay for tonight. But it's, I think it was like 95 this afternoon in Fahrenheit. I don't know uh, what that. I don't know what that is in Celsius. I don't know what that is in Celsius. Uh, mid 30s. Um, yeah. Yeah, that's worse. As soon as it's like above 25 degrees, I'm like, nope. <laughs> it's it's just kind of gross, and so that's it's kind of uh, dampening my uh, enthusiasm for the solstice today. Yeah, I don't know. I'm supposed to be going to see uh, family tomorrow, and I'm. A little bit apprehensive about that. My my mom's 85th birthday is coming up. And so mm. my sisters have kind of bullied me into going back to my hometown. And they're like, oh, there won't be that many people there. And I was like, uh, I'm, I'm, I will spray you with hand sanitizer if you get close to me. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm not eating any of your food. But so, but they, you know, my, my mom lives on, um, you know, nine acres of farmland and you know she she has gardens and stuff like that so tomorrow will be more getting back out into nature of course that also means that there's going to be a shit ton of mosquitoes yeah um, I, all right my back is already covered in mosquito bites yeah I am, the, I am the mosquito magnet when i go outside you know yeah um, i'll be standing there just swatting and everyone's going no there's no bugs i'm like yeah because they're all on me yeah <laughs> Yeah, so tomorrow I think we more like out into nature a little bit, and my solstice is is the same of what you're saying about roses. It's you know flower centered, but also with solar centered, so candles and flames and stuff like that. And if I had the ability to have people over, maybe a fire, but that's not happening. Right. <laughs> well, I suppose we should uh, wrap up uh, before we keep our listeners too much longer. Uh, Ash, obviously, you know that I could talk to you for hours. <laughs> so, but thank you so much for joining us today. But before we let you go, where can people find you online? People can find me on Instagram at sunflower knit, K-N-I-T, uh, and at from field to skin, which is my side project where I uh, chronicle the Canadian fiber shed. Uh, and then online, ashalberg.com, uh, and then also from field to skin.com. Excellent. And, and uh, 
I, I also just wanted to say that uh, we, if you wanted to support Witch City Witches, we do have t-shirts. So people should do that um, if you go to our website. <laughs> yeah, so uh, we do have our website, witchcitywitches.com. And of course, if you have any questions for us, you can always email us at askawitch at witchcitywitches.com and follow us on Instagram at witchcitywitches. Thank you for tuning in. Happy solstice. And please stay safe and wear a fucking mask, guys. No kidding. <laughs> Thanks so much. Thanks. Thank you. <laughs>